Joshua chapter 7. The chapter begins with an ominous word. But, first word, going into chapter 7, a continuation then of what happened in chapter 6, Joshua and Israel, they're riding high off of their victory at Jericho. They've just conquered the city. They've taken it. The first massive victory as they've come into the promised land. And fame of Joshua and Israel is spreading all throughout the region. Victory is ringing among the people. Chapter 7 begins with the word, But, however, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. What does that mean, under the ban? Look back at chapter 6, verse 17. The Lord told the people before they went into into Jericho, The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel a curse and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That phrase under the ban in Hebrew is haram, which means devoted to destruction. The Father told the people of Israel, when you go into Jericho, everything is devoted to destruction. Everything. And the things which are not as easily destroyed, the gold, the silver, the precious things, those go into the treasury. Those go to the Lord. Those don't go to anybody in Israel, not to a single man or woman or child. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now I want you to note right at the beginning here that the Lord knows exactly who took what. And remember that. Before anything is about to happen that will happen in this chapter, God knows what's going on. He always does. He knows what Achan did. He saw it happen. He's aware of it. And we'll begin on from there. But before we do, I want you to think about something. We have an enemy who is the greatest stumbling block to the Christian life. This enemy can do us more personal harm than anyone else. This enemy is a user... He undermines us by controlling our hands, our abilities, even our thoughts, because this enemy resides beneath our skin. And as J. Vernon McGee so eloquently put it, the worst enemy that you have is yourself. Nations and cities and churches and individuals have been utterly destroyed by the enemy within. One of the most famous historical examples is that story of the city of Troy that was locked up by the Greeks embattled, history tells us, for ten long years. But somehow the Greeks could not get into that city. So finally they packed up everything on their ships and they sailed away, but they left behind a large wooden horse. And the people of Troy were curious by this and drew that wooden horse into the midst of the city. Once it was inside the city, you know the story, the Greeks inside the wooden horse burst out and conquered the city of Troy once they got within. And even within the Christian church itself, the worst havoc is always wrecked from within. In fact, a quick read through the letters of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor, there in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, reveals several warnings to these seven churches. And they're all internal problems that Jesus is dealing with. They're all internal warnings. Ephesus was warned against losing their first love. Pergamum was warned against false doctrine and worldliness. Thyatira was warned against internal false teaching and immorality. Sardis was just plain dead on the inside. And Laodicea was called lukewarm because it was spiritually tepid and tasteless. The most insidious enemy is always the enemy within. But the book of Joshua, as we approach it and think about it, Remember this, while being historically accurate, is also powerfully symbolic and practical in teaching us how to live the Spirit-filled life. How as Christians to move forward in our faith, in our Christianity, to live in this world and to be more and more like Jesus, who we aspire to be like. 
The book of Joshua is a book that is all about faith. And what is faith? Does anybody remember the definition of faith? And by the way, I asked this question last week, and nobody first hour knew the answer. Nobody second hour knew the answer either. What is faith? Do you remember the definition that I gave? Yes. Amen. Let's say it together. Taking possession of the promises of God. One more time. Taking possession of the promises of God. It's grabbing hold. It's saying these things that God said will be. I hold now. I believe now. I haven't seen all the promises. That's why they're still called promises. But I hold them. I possess them. I believe in them. I know God is going to do exactly what He said He was going to do. And so I take possession today. That's faith. Haven't quite seen it fulfilled. But I take possession today. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are invited by the Lord to take possession. Because He's already blessed us with every possible spiritual blessing. But, as we begin to truly live and walk in the Spirit and live lives of faith, don't forget this. Galatians 5.17 tells us the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul said in Romans 7.21, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Paul is a Christian, a leader in the church. And he says, evil is present within. i got this battle going on, the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and it's going on inside me, and yes, I have faith, and yes, I'm a believer, but guess what, i still got skin on, I am in the flesh. And as long as we live in the flesh, the flesh will battle the spirit. Please understand that. Because one of the most disappointing things that can happen to Christians who don't understand that is to walk years and years and years down the road with Jesus only to fall flat on their faces in sin and think, I'm never going to get it. Remember, there is an enemy within. There is an enemy that is at war. And that enemy is your flesh. It's my flesh. It's me. And as much as I want to be conformed into the image of Christ, I'm still fighting this battle within. To put it simply, sin leaves us aching. It burns us out. It kills us. Numbers 32 verse 23 says, Be sure, be sure, your sin will find you out. You can't hide it. And those of you who know the story of Achan, maybe you've heard it many times before, the man who is going to take some of these things under the ban... And hide them under his tent. Or you can hide it, but your sin will find you out, as it will Achan as we read the story this morning. Romans 6.23, Paul says, The wages of sin is death. That's what sin brings. But there's a divine difficulty here. A struggle, an issue that the Father has to deal with. For the Bible tells us, 1 John 1.5, that God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. So here we are in the flesh with this evil that Paul says is within us. And by the way, as a side note, I'm watching this morning and they're having a big debate about this this guy who kidnapped the two boys. Maybe you saw it in the news this last week. One boy that he had for four and a half years, another boy that he only had for about three days, and they got both the boys out. And so now they're talking about this kidnapper, this child molester. What should be done with child molesters? And can child molesters be rehabilitated? And in this whole conversation about this, some of them are, are good people and some of them are bad people, they were saying. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's the problem. They don't get it. Our world does not understand. There's no such thing as good people. We all have evil within us. We are all capable of sin. The human nature has a sin nature within it. And until we understand that, things like rehabilitation, we're not going to get it. The only rehabilitation in the world is that which Jesus can produce in our lives. And without His power, the power of God's Spirit, we don't rehabilitate. Because the enemy is still there. The enemy within. So if God can't abide sin, and the wages of sin is death, how do we reconcile the problem? The Lord says, Ezekiel 18.32, I have no pleasure in death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. That's a powerful statement. God's saying, I don't care who it is or what they've done or how bad they are. I still don't take any pleasure in their death. 
Which tells us that when God ordains and calls for the death of every man, woman, and child in Jericho, He did not take pleasure in it. He had to do it. But He didn't enjoy it. He never does. For the Lord never wants to see a single person lost. 2 Peter 3.9 God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the enemy within fights repentance tooth and nail. So when the Israelites come into the promised land, the only battles they're going to lose as we study Joshua, the only ones they'll lose are the ones that they lose not from the enemies without, but from the sin within. When Israel sins, they lose. When they follow the Lord, they win. The enemy within is their worst enemy in the promised land. And the story of Achan is a shocking example of this. I'm going to give you a couple of things to jot down, maybe three of them this morning. And if you're a note taker, which I encourage you to be, go ahead and jot these down. The first one is all about Achan's sin. Achan's sin burdened his own fellowship. Achan's sin burdened his own fellowship. Achan, a, a member of the tribe of Judah, a son of Israel, he is now in there and he went into Jericho. He fought like everybody else and took some things for himself. Let's read the story. Verse 1 again. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. We'll see in a moment why that's all said there. Took some of the things under the ban. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and they said to him, Don't let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they, that is Ai, are few. Now to get some understanding here, Ai is roughly the size of the city of Anacortes. It shouldn't have been a difficulty for the Israelites to go and to take. In fact, later, when Ai is finally conquered, we're told that 12,000 are slain. About 12,000. I think Anacortes is around 12 to 15, somewhere in there. People who think in terms of war strategy say to take 12,000 people, it necessitates an army of about two to 4,000, somewhere in there. And we see Israel go up to fight with 3,000 men. Verse 4. About 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And that, my friends, was supposed to happen to the Canaanites, not the Israelites. You may remember reading before Exodus 15.15 as the people were praising God after they had come through the Red Sea and they're singing praises and worshiping and some prophecy comes out and the following is spoken. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away and now the children of Israel, their hearts are melting away. Because they sent what army they needed, 3,000 up against Ai, a city that was easy to take. And they fled in disgrace, and 36 Israelite men were murdered that day, were killed in that battle. Why? It was all because of the sin of one man, Achan. God knew it. No one in Israel knew it. That's not fair. It's not fair. You read the story and say, wait a minute. Lord, you knew, but they didn't know. How could they know? And besides the fact it was one guy's sin and his sin affects everybody else. 36 men are dead because of his sin. And all Israel has to flee from Ai because of Achan's sin. That's not fair. Joshua couldn't possibly have known about Achan. And that's where we're wrong. Joshua should have known about Achan. Joshua had every reason to be aware. He had a responsibility that as far as I can see was abdicated in that attack against Ai. What are you talking about? Look in your Bibles. Keep your finger back there in uh, chapter 7 and go back to Numbers. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27 and verse 18. Numbers 27, 18. Something, gang, I never had seen before studying it this week. I always knew about the story of Achan and that, that Israel fell because of one man's sin. And I just kind of pieced it together. And as I said earlier, I just assumed, well, God is right and we're wrong, so we'll figure this out later. Well, we can figure it out this morning. And we can see right now why this happened. Verse 18 of Numbers 27. The Lord said to Moses, 
Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him, in order that the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, verse 21, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Remember the Urim and the Thummim? Those were having to do with the, the breastpiece on the high priest's uh, chest. And the twelve stones were in there. Somehow, we don't exactly know how, the Urim and the Thummim were used to determine God's will. To approach the Lord. And they'd pray and ask Him. And somehow God revealed His will through the Urim and the Thummim. Not the Uma Thurman. The Urim and the Thummim. I love that. I say that every, every time. Anyway, so He's supposed to use the Urim to figure out the will. It says in verse 21, going on, At His command they shall go out, and at His command they shall come in, both He and the sons of Israel with Him, even all the congregation. Now Joshua, we're told right here, is a spirit-filled man. But you can be spirit-filled and completely miss the leading of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? See, where we get off track is where we think if I'm spirit-filled, I should know exactly what God wants every time. Not if you don't go to Him. Not if you don't ask. Just because you have the filling of the Holy Spirit does not mean that you always have the leading of the Spirit. The leading, that's up to you if you're willing to follow and pursue and ask. Paul warns, in fact, that even those who are Spirit-filled can grieve the Holy Spirit and even quench the Holy Spirit. You can be a Spirit-filled person and say, I don't want you in my life today, Spirit. You can do things that quench the power of the Spirit in your life, even if you're Spirit-filled. Well, what was Joshua supposed to do with each and every battle? He was supposed to go to Eleazar, the high priest. He was supposed to go before the Lord and seek the Lord's will in everything that he did. But where is Eleazar in our story in Joshua chapter 7? Absent. Oh, I'm sure he was there in Israel somewhere, but he certainly was not consulted. We don't see any indication that Joshua went to Eliezer and the two of them went before the Lord and said, Lord, how do you want us to proceed against Ai? How do you want us to fight against this next enemy? The captain of the Lord's host had come to Joshua before Jericho. They had a meeting and the Lord told him, here's how you are to proceed. And the Lord led them. The Lord led them across the Jordan River. Each instance coming into the promised land, they had been led by the Lord. But when we get to Ai, when we get to this next battle, what do we see happen? Ah, it's an easy battle. It's just Anacortes. How easy is that? We take them down. Prophesizable Carver. It's not a problem. Just grab a few men. We don't need the whole army. 3,000 ought to do it. It's light combat. We don't have to send up the whole army. Don't bother Eliezer. <laughs> we'll just make the call. We'll go the easy route. By the way, Eliezer's name means God has helped. But in this instance, God was not asked. They went up without any information. Had Joshua sought, and I absolutely believe this, had Joshua sought the Lord before going up against Ai, he would have discovered by divine revelation that there was sin in the camp. But he didn't ask. And since he didn't ask, and they went forward on human effort, what the Lord knew... There was sin in the camp, buried under the tent of Achan. The Lord knew this. Joshua did not, because he never asked. And so they went up on the power of man, and 36 died that day, because nobody sought the Lord. Joshua was spirit-filled. The gifts of the Spirit were in play, operating via Eliezer the high priest. By the way, Jesus is our high priest today. So the gifts of the Spirit today function and operate through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But Joshua didn't ask, and so the work of the Spirit, the information Joshua needed before going into battle, was quenched. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. And by the way, prophetic utterances, anytime you hear the word utterance like that, it almost sounds kind of bizarre or mystical or mysterious. It's not. Don't despise the prophecies. Don't despise the word of the Lord given to you, the clear word to lead you forward. Don't ignore the Father. Seek Him. Ask Him for His will, His divine will, to be made manifest in your life. 
But Paul also says, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. But do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Have you ever been there in your life? And you say, Lord, this is an easy little problem. I got it. I got it covered. It's just AI. The Lord doesn't need me to bother Him with this. Last night we were looking at at Hannah's classes for next semester and and talking about what are we going to do about this and how can we figure that out. And and you know what? Little problem. I don't need to bother the Lord with that unless I want the Lord's input. Unless I want to know what the Father wants for my daughter, his daughter, next semester at school. We don't ask. And because we don't ask, we don't know where we're headed. As Russ said Wednesday... AI is it's just a little town. It's, just a, it's an easy thing. Not a big deal. And, and Russ said, AI is one of the few names in the Bible that I can actually spell. <laughs> just a little problem. We can take it. We don't need Eliezer. We don't need God, our help. Just the other morning. In fact, it was Thursday morning. As I was sitting in my office, I was beginning to study. And I was right here in this section of, of notes, studying and looking and processing this. And I hear Hayden crying out in the living room. Because he can't get his shoes on. The whole tying shoe thing, you know. I mean, he's just, thanks a lot for Velcro. Kids don't know how to tie shoes anymore. And he's trying to get his shoes tied and get them on and everything. And he's crying. And I hear Cheryl come out. And she said exactly what I was thinking that very moment. You know, you can ask your dad for help. And she was in the other room where she couldn't hear him getting ready herself. I'm right there, you know, ten steps away in my office. You can ask your dad for help. And I thought, <laughs> how often am I sitting there trying to get my shoes tied and I don't ask my dad for help? We just forget to go to the Father. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? You started out with the Spirit. He led you to the Lord. You are, if you're a Christian this morning, you're a Christian because the Father drew you to the Son. You started out in the Spirit. Having begun that way, are we going to get perfect before God in the flesh? By our own understanding, by our own strength, by our own abilities? Or will we take it to the Lord? Here's something to to realize. The Lord doesn't care about the size of the problem. It doesn't matter to God. Whether it's too big for you, or we think too small for Him, it doesn't matter. The size of the problem doesn't bother Him. He cares about the size of our faith and the depth of our trust. Achan's sin burdened the entire fellowship partially because the leaders of his fellowship had not gone before the Lord in battle. So they were unaware and they were uninformed. Verse 6 reading on tells us Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads. Now remember they don't know still what's going on. They just know they lost the battle. they're, They're disgraced. Verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan like Reuben and and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Maybe we just should have stayed on the other side of the river, Lord, and never proceeded at all. Oh, Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back? And that's literally neck. Since Israel has turned their neck before their enemies... For the Canaanites and all of the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And I love God's response here. He says, get up. What is, why have you fallen on your face? Why are you face down? Man, when you're face down, face up. Don't wallow in it. Come to the Lord and find out what's going on. Now again, we've got to stop and go, Israel has sinned here. Verse 11. Israel has sinned, says the Lord. And they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they, plural, have also put them among their own things. They? Well, I thought it was he. I thought this was Achan who did this. 
But God here is saying they, the entire company of Israel, is culpable, is responsible. And there's something we need to understand here, gang. When we enter into fellowship with each other, we bear responsibility for each other. We matter to each other. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. Let me just say that one more time. I think Paul's clear here. Bear one another's burdens. Whose responsibility is it for us to take care of the family? Mine. Yours. If someone's hurting at the bridge, whose responsibility is it to minister to them and take care of them? Pastor Rick's. No, yours. Whose responsibility if someone's sick in the hospital? One of the elders. No, yours. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I heard something last week and I'm going to share it with you. I prayed about this as to whether or not I should say anything because it's a negative comment. The comment was by a particular person that they had heard or felt that the British Christian Fellowship was a cold church. I'm not talking about the heater. We know that's cold. The comment was made that the bridge, and the music's good, and it's definitely a teaching church, but it's kind of cold. You need to understand that every single church that I have served in has been accused of being a cold church. Every one. You might go, oh, well, Rick, I think there's a common denominator there. (laughs) The idea of a church being cold, my friends, is a common statement by those who have placed the burden of hospitality and relationship on the backs of others. And if you are sitting here this morning and you think, ah, you know, I like it there, but it's kind of a cold church. I really don't know anybody and no one's coming up and talking to me. Guess what? It's your responsibility. You want this place to be warm and loving and relational? Go after it. Take care of it. Stick around a little longer on a Sunday morning and get to know people. Why no one talks to me? Then talk to them. It's simple. My dad told me when I was four years old, you want friends, you got to be a friend. It's simple. Relationship is the burden and the responsibility of every single one of us. If you want a loving, warm, friendly church, then gang, start loving. And by the way, for every one person who says the bridge is cold, I get 50 saying, wow, I just feel the love. Somebody's missing it. Bottom line, this place will be as loving as we want it to be. Individually, personally, we have a responsibility to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether it's here, or at the Baptist Church, or at Christ the King, or any church around, the responsibility falls on each one of us individually to love and to bear one another's burdens. Don't put it off on someone else. You go after people. You love them. Now back in verses 12 and 13, the Lord tells us something telling about sin. He says, therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back or their necks before their enemies for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus the Lord... The God of Israel has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. And whether it's corporately in a church fellowship or personally in my own life, this is absolutely true. God will withhold His power, His blessing, even His provision if I'm living with unconfessed sin. I cannot stand until I've gotten it out. Until I've confessed, until I've brought it before the Lord. If I'm hiding it away, the power is not there. The blessing is not there. The provision is not there. If I'm clinging to things that I don't think anyone else knows, and I am unrepentant before the Lord. Listen, if your spiritual life is not working for you, if you're having trouble standing before your own enemies, whatever those enemies may be, you might want to start by looking within. And dealing openly and honestly with the Lord. As we sang this morning in the song, the silence between us must end. And my friends, the silence is not on God's part. It's on ours. When we're unwilling to deal with the truth of the sin in our lives. And the reason the Lord doesn't send His provision is not that He's trying to slap you on the hand to be mean. The Lord is not willing to go on blessing when He knows our sin is beneath it. 
It's whitewashing the outside of something that's rusting and corrupt underneath. He wants to deal with the corruption. Because corruption doesn't just go away. Sin doesn't just simply dissipate. And God is never into appearances. He's into the heart. Where the corruption happens. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27 to the scribes and Pharisees. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too appear outwardly righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's why the Pharisees could not see Messiah when he came. When Mashiach was among the Jewish people, the Jewish people who missed him, missed him because they were so corrupt on the inside they could not see out. They missed the provision of the Lord because the sin was thick. Now, at the point we are in our story, Joshua still has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know what's up. But God does. And we've got to learn to rely on His Spirit to lead and to reveal. Watch how He reveals what happens. In the morning, God continues with Joshua, verse 14. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord shall uh, take shall come near by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all the beloved to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. The Lord is so serious about this, he takes the entire company of Israel through a process of digging up this buried sin. Everyone gets involved. Tribe, by family, by household, by man. And the second thing to note this morning is that Achan's sin was brought out faithfully. Achan's sin was brought out faithfully. Verse 16 tells us, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites. And then he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Why the long process? Didn't the Lord already know exactly who it was, that it was Achan? Why didn't God just say, Joshua, it's Achan. Go to his tent and deal with him, and this will all be over. He draws the whole thing out. It's kind of like my daughter looking up at me when I'm giving her one of those lectures. She's like, can you just tell me what I did wrong? <laughs> Get it over with, you know. He takes them through step by step, stage by stage, tribe by family, by household, finally to man, until he ultimately gets taken. Why does he do this? Because every step of the way, there's opportunity for Achan to repent and to confess what he did. Think about that. Achan's standing there watching as, oh, okay, you know, someone took some things. He knows he took them. He knows he's the guilty party. But he watches while the tribe of Judah is singled out. And then Achan stands there. Judah, well, that's a little close to home. That's okay. Someone else will get caught or something. I can't be the only one who did this, right? And then... Out of Judah comes the Zerahites, and out of the Zerahites comes his household, and then finally it narrows down to Achan, and every step along the way, Achan could have said, wait a minute, hold on, stop the, stop the wheels. It was me. I confess. I did it. I repent. In fact, Achan could have spoken up earlier when Israel returned from battle and those 36 men were killed. He could have said, Wow. I think this is my fault, Joshua. I think I did it. But he held his tongue. And gang, the longer we take to confess sin, the worse it gets. The more the corruption spreads, the more the rust impacts our lives and our hearts, the longer we take to deal with the sin that's in our lives. I've told my kids this many times, there may still be consequences, but I will always go easier on you if you confess to me before I find out that you did it. If I find out, the punishment's always worse. And it's harder on you. God ultimately is going to bring about full disclosure, but He always invites us to give full disclosure ourselves first. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. 
And be sure, unconfessed sin is going to blow up in your face. It always does. Achan thought he had it covered. He thought he had his sin buried. Covered over, just like Ananias and Sapphira. Remember their story? This is not just an Old Testament story. There is a parallel in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. A frightening story. Where the whole church is given, and they're selling land and houses, and they're collecting it all. They're saying, hey, anybody who has a need, come and show up. We'll take care of it. You can't make your mortgage this month. That's okay, because Billy Bob over here, he just sold his house. And so we're going to take some money from that sale and give it to you and you're taking care of it. And everything's good. And there's really a sense of community. And then Ananias and Sapphira go along, come along and they say, hey, we want a piece of that. We want people to know how gracious and giving we are. So they sold some property. And they gave it to the church, but they kept some of it for themselves, which was not the problem. The problem was they told the church they gave it all. Oh, yeah, well, here, poverty, we'll give, give the whole thing to the church. But they held on to some of it themselves. And you may remember the story, but Ananias comes before Peter, and Peter goes, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias drops dead. And then his wife comes in a little bit later, not knowing that he is dead. In fact, they're just carrying him out right before she walks into the room, and Peter says, why did, did, you, did you do this thing? No, 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 we didn't do this thing. And Peter goes, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Boom, Sapphira drops dead. And Acts chapter 5 verse 11 tells us great fear came over the whole church. Yeah. Can you imagine hearing that at the bridge? Yeah, someone said they were going to give something. They didn't give all of it. And Rick asked them why you lied to them. And they just fell dead right there in the barn. And next Sunday I'm not going because the heater's not working. So I'm just going to stay away for a while. You know. Great fear came over the whole church. Job 28 verse 28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Psalm 19 verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs 10.27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. And Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and His children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. And if it takes the fear of the Lord to dig out our sins, so be it. Maybe we need to fear the Lord a little bit more. And take Him a little more seriously. Man, the first century church learned a quick lesson. You don't mess with God. You don't try to fool God. You can't. And Achan and his family and the children of Israel are about to learn. They're about to learn that same lesson. So the Lord faithfully walks out this process. He brings out Achan's sin faithfully, carefully, step by step. But Achan doesn't confess until he's caught. Verse 19. Achan's brought forward and Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to Him. Why is Joshua saying that? Because I think Joshua is still hoping that Achan can be saved. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. These words of Joshua in this moment, man, they are filled with grief. Listen to what he says. My son, my son, I implore you. Remember, Joshua is, in the Old Testament, somewhat of a picture, a type of Jesus, our Joshua, in the New Testament. And in these words, I see Jesus. I hear Jesus. In fact, it brings to mind the broken-hearted grief of our Joshua as he confronted the intentions of Judas Iscariot on the night that he was betrayed by Judas at the Last Supper. He confronted Judas? Yeah, listen to this. John 13, 21, Jesus became troubled in spirit and testified and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples, verse 22, began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And we're told, Jesus said down in verse 26, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Listen, dipping the morsel at the Passover, at this particular moment in the Passover, and the reason why the the apostles didn't understand even then that it was Judas, they missed this, because to dip the morsel and give it to someone was a show of deep friendship. What Jesus was doing in that moment was dipping the morsel and saying, Will you be my friend, Judas? Will you be my friend? My son, I implore you, stick with me. Don't do this. Be my friend. And Judas took the morsel from Jesus 
And we're told in verse 27 of John 13 that after the morsel, Satan entered into him. He wasn't demon-possessed. Judas was Satan-possessed. And therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Can you even imagine how grieved Jesus must have felt? Judas, one of the twelve who walked with him for three years as part of the inner circle, betrayed him. And Jesus in that last moment is saying... Are you going to be my friend? Will you stick with me, Judas? In the same way Joshua was saying, Achan, I, I implore you, my son. Praise the Lord. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. And Ephesians 4.30 tells us, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't hold it back. It does bring grief to the Father. It does hurt God's heart. Because He loves you so much. Hiding our sin thinking we're pulling the wool over the Lord's eyes it grieves his spirit well verse 20 tells us Achan answered Joshua and said truly I have sinned against the Lord the God of Israel and this is what I did verse 21 when I saw among the spoil okay stop right there Achan's got a problem he still doesn't get it he still does not understand notice what he does immediately he calls the things that he took spoils but they're not spoils spoils are something you get in war that you have earned that you're allowed to take you wipe out the other army and you get to take some of the spoils back home but God said there will be no spoils in this, in this battle there will be no spoils from Jericho only devoted things things under ban that's what Achan should have said when I saw the things under the ban then I took them but he said when I saw the spoils still indicating that it's something that he thought he could take what's he doing? he's rephrasing he's renaming it he's restating the sin and we do it all the time oh I misspoke no you didn't you lied well I'm just concerned about so and so no you're gossiping I just borrowed these office supplies. No, you stole them. We call it an affair, but it's fornication and adultery. People say, I'm gay. No, you're a sodomite. We are so good in our culture about renaming sin to make it a little less hard to hear, a little more palatable, a little more acceptable. And in our culture today, we no longer hardly even recognize sin. In fact, what we've done is instead of sin, we call it syndrome. No, I'm not a sinner. I just got a syndrome. I, I, I got an illness. I got a disease. I got, I got a struggle. And every problem or failure or evil in our psyched out culture is a syndrome with a medical reason for it and we're aching because of it. Because we will not recognize sin as sin, which is what it is. And until we're willing to recognize it as it is, the Lord cannot heal in our hearts. It wasn't spoils, Achan. It was devoted things, things under a ban. And you see in verse 21, this progression of his sin, he says, I saw, verse 21, a beautiful mantle from Shinar, that's Babylon, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, and I coveted them, and I took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So he saw, and he coveted, and he took, and he concealed, and that is so typical of the process of sin. We see it first, and then we want it, and then we take hold of it, and then we hide it. And that's what Achan did. It's what we often do. He saw, coveted, took, concealed. By the way, what's he going to do with the beautiful mantle from Shinar? Does he think he can wear that thing around camp and no one's going to notice? How often when we sin do we not think ahead about whether or not it's ultimately going to do us any good whatsoever? In the moment, in the heat of the moment, oh, I want it, I take it. But later on it's like, wow, that thing's got to stay buried. <laughs> I can wear it around the tent, I guess. That's about it. But gang, the sin of Achan, it all started with the eyes. And as ugly a thing as sin is, it never looks ugly that way in the first place. It always starts out looking kind of good, like the fruit to Eve. Or Bathsheba to David. Or money to Judas. And the Bible tells us, 1 John 2.16, that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The eye. The eye is so easily attracted to sin. And in our world, think about it. In America today, how much is devoted to appearance? 
How much is devoted to the look of things, visual stimuli, from commercials to catalogs? Man, I'm glad Christmas is over. Because the catalogs just start stacking up. And it's absolutely amazing to me how many things I find out that we need that I didn't know I needed until the catalog arrives. Then you start flipping through and go, wow, i got to have that. Wow, that beautiful mantle from Shinar, that's not too bad. i got to have some of that. I want this. And we're visually just drawn in so easily. It's funny to me, you know, we can sit through a two-hour movie, no problem. Because it's visual. And our eyes are, wow, oh, look at the effects. Whoa, look at what they're doing. Well, you know, sit down and listen to an hour-long sermon. And we start to go... Do you want to go to lunch? Yeah, that's fine. Where do you want to go? He's looking. The difference of visual stimuli. The eyes and the ears. Which is why I think Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. Listen up. John 20, 29, he says, Because... He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Because to hear, you've got to slow down. You've got to stop. You've got to pay attention. You've got to take it in. And I think we'd be blessed if we did less looking and more listening to the word and the spirit speaking truth into our lives. Now, the end of this story, gang, is very hard to swallow, but there's still hope ahead. Read on, verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent, and they brought them to Joshua, to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, they have called the name of that place the Valley of Achor to this day. Okay, number three and final thing in your notes. Achan's sin buried his own family. Akinson buried his own family. This is one of those biblical stories that certainly can instill fear. And I'm not even going to attempt to explain or justify the severity of this punishment except to say this. Don't blame it on the Lord. That is what we typically do when we see harsh treatment, whether it's in the Bible or in life. We go, Lord, how could you? God, why would you? I don't understand you. That's not fair. And we miss what's really going on. A member of a family gets stoned and the rest are burned by the actions. And we see it in our culture all the time. Somebody in a family chooses sin and the whole family gets wiped out because of it. So a father or a wife decides to go off and have an adulterous relationship and the children suffer for it. It may not seem fair, but it's reality in the world in which we live. No one, and I mean no one, sins in a vacuum. I've said this before. Our sins always impact others, especially those closest to us. If I choose to sin, my wife, my children, my in-laws, my family, my friends will be affected by it. Whether I want to believe that or not, it's truth. And they can sin affected everyone. In fact, Achan's sin not only buried his family, 36 men were dead and buried thanks to Achan's sin. How about their families? How about those wives and and children whose fathers would not come home from the war because Achan sinned? Because of his decision to rebel against the Lord. And because of that decision, the Spirit of the Lord was not with them when they went into battle. And so 36 were now dead. How is that fair? What about their families? You see, we can say all we want. Well, man, couldn't Achan have just gotten forgiven? That, you know, isn't there some mercy for Achan? Well, sure, you could say, great. Forgive Achan, all's good and, and, and fair. And then you've got 36 widows going, 
That's not justice. That's not fair. For every violation against one person, there's someone else who's been affected by it. By the way, it's also possible that Aiken's entire family were accomplices in the action anyway. How did he bury that stuff under the tent without his kids and wife seeing it and knowing? I think they all knew. And so the responsibility for the sin was not just his. It was his family's who he led right into it. But I have a sense, and I can't prove this, that they all knew the goods were buried in their tent. Any way you slice it, it's trouble. The Valley of Achor, by the way, Achor means trouble. Achan's name means troubler. And that's why Joshua says at the end, the Lord will trouble you this day. Why have you troubled us, Achan? Trouble. We take you down to the Valley of Achor. Troubled. Because you have brought trouble on the people of Israel today. But listen to this, and here's the hope game. Two other times the Valley of Achor is mentioned in Scripture. Just two times. Achan may have burdened his fellowship of Israel, but Isaiah 65 verse 9 tells us, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. God says, Achan brought trouble on the people in the Valley of Achor. But guess what? The Valley of Achor is going to be a place of hope. It's going to be a resting place. A place of peace for my people. Achan's sin was brought out and certainly it buried his family. But listen, Hosea chapter 2 verse 14. The Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. God speaking as a husband to his wife, Israel. He says, Then I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor, listen to this, the valley of Achor as a door of hope. A place of trouble is a place of hope, yes. She will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. Achor, the valley of trouble, is now a door of hope. How? Because Jesus took our burden. He bore it faithfully at Calvary and they buried him for our sin. Jesus was burned. He was stoned, as it were, for our sin. And they buried him. And they stoned him. What do you mean they stoned him? They rolled that great stone over the doorway of his tomb. That stone that seemingly would hold him in. That would lock up Jesus in death. But that tomb has a doorway today. And you can see it, at least what they think may be the tomb, the garden tomb. It's got a doorway. And it's open. And there's no stone there. Because the doorway is a doorway of hope. The valley of trouble becomes a door of hope for us. In Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. For where man buries his troubles, Jesus resurrects to new life. And in John 10.9, what is it that Jesus said? I am the door. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us, for being the door of hope. Even in our best times, Father, it seems like we live in a valley of trouble. And we bring trouble on ourselves in our choices for sin as the flesh battles the spirit. And we understand Achan. The story is not too far away from many of ours as we try to hide the sin that's in our lives. As we go after the things that are under a ban. Father, we praise you that in Jesus there is a door of hope, that the valley of Achor now becomes a door of hope for us. A place of rest because of Jesus and his sacrifice. It is amazing, Father, that you would take our place on the altar of Calvary to provide hope. We thank you for this and we praise you. And we ask that you would keep us focused on Jesus. And say this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.